Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau. Today we're going to discuss a recent case uh, relating to sexual misconduct on campus, which established some interesting um, thoughts around uh, the duty of care owed to reporting students. Uh, the facts of the case uh, are quite um, uh, straightforward. They are that two different students made allegations of sexual misconduct in respect of a uh, male student, uh, all studying at the same institution. Uh, the alleged sexual misconduct took place over a period of time with one student experiencing it to begin with and then the other student experiencing it slightly later down the line. The judgment concluded that the institution had been negligent in the conduct of its disciplinary process uh, and in its treatment of the two reporting students in the course of that process, uh, causing them psychiatric harm. And then they were awarded damages for that psychiatric harm. So to discuss this case uh, today, I'm joined by Geraldine Swanton, a uh, longstanding colleague and friend from the education team. Um, Jerry, this case has been widely reported as uh, establishing new duties of care, new law and so on. Um, and I think your view is that although it's a really very interesting and important case, it doesn't quite do that. Is that right? Absolutely right. It creates absolutely no new law. It applies the ordinary uh, principles of duty of care. Mind you, it might be a case of applying it for the first time in the context of sexual misconduct, but it's certainly not new law. It is the ordinary duty to take reasonable steps to prevent harm to students where that harm is reasonably foreseeable and where it is within the institution's re reasonable control to prevent it. So it's important to underscore the fact that there is no general open-ended duty to prevent harm, either self-harm or harm from third parties generally. So there's no duty to make somebody better off. Now, there will be some exceptions, which include circumstances where uh, an institution has created a danger of harm, which wouldn't otherwise have existed, or where an institution has assumed responsibility for an individual's safety on which an individual has relied. And I, and I think that's a really important point to keep in mind, isn't it? There is a, a, a duty of care to take reasonable care in the circumstances, and we'll come back to, to what that might look like in a minute. Uh, then there is the separate categories where you've assumed responsibility that you might otherwise not have to do things, or where somehow... Uh, through your your uh, your conducts and your decision making, you've created a risk of harm that wouldn't otherwise have uh, existed. But these are well established categories of uh, duty of care. Um, so, so Jerry, just just picking up uh, how how did the how did the um, the uh, judge in this case apply these principles to essentially a higher education institution? Um, I suppose. The judge was at pains to distinguish the duty of care from the standard of care that yeah. is expected. And he said, look, the standard of care will be assessed by reference to an institution's own policies and procedures. Some of those procedures might be good and you comply with them. Some of them might be bad, in which case you deviate from them. 
but he also um, played great reliance on placed great reliance on UUK guidance uh, relating to sexual misconduct, particularly or misconduct in general, in 2016, um, which was issued in 2016. And he said that is industry guidance, and it has a certain um, you know uh, credibility, and institutions will be judged by reference to that guidance to assess what is reasonable. And I think that um, when you then go on to look at the the, the sort of bindings and the judgment uh, that was that was made, there was quite a lot of circumstances where essentially it was that sector guidance that was seen as establishing what it was reasonable to do. And insofar as the institution didn't follow the guidance or that their policies and procedures weren't consistent with the guidance, that was regarded as evidence of negligence in those uh, of a breach of breach of the duty of care. Is it, it um you want to give some thoughts, a couple of examples of the type of things they picked up on? Sure. The, the first really interesting one was precautionary suspension, which is always an issue we have to advise on. And there were three occasions on which the institution in this case could have imposed uh, precautionary suspension. The first was in 2017 when the female student made an initial report, not a formal report under the Code of Conduct, but an initial report. Um, and uh, the judge decided there was no negligence there in failing to suspend the student because the female student didn't want the male student to know she'd made that report. So absolutely no negligence. Then 15 months later, the female student made a formal uh, report of misconduct under the Code of Conduct. And some 15 months after the incident, the alleged incident, and the judge said, look, there was no negligence there in failing to suspend the student as a uh, the male student as a precautionary measure because nothing had happened for 15 months and therefore there was little evidence of risk however a number of weeks later other female students made allegations of sexual misconduct against the same male student and the judge said at that time there was a clear risk, there was evidence of risk, but he again relied on the UUK guidance and said you need to balance the risk with the adverse consequences for the male student. But he said in that case where there was real evidence of risk, the reasonable conduct would have been to suspend the male student at that time. And there wasn't really any alternative to suspension at that point. I think that's that that to me was actually a really helpful guidance from the court because you and I have worked with lots of institutions who who sort of grapple with when to impose a precautionary suspension. And there are, there are sometimes a tendency to see it as an almost automatic reaction based on the seriousness of the allegation. Uh, whereas I think the, the very clear guidance here from the court was to say it's always about risk. So in a way, if the um, risk is such that you could allow both parties to continue to study, that is what you should aim to do. But obviously, if that's not possible, then uh, some sort of precautionary measures ultimately leading to su suspension uh, might well be appropriate. I think the second group of sort of findings of negligence that I thought were very interesting were in that space of assuming responsibilities to do things and then not doing them. Um, again, did you want to uh, say a little bit about the kind of things that the court was looking at there? Yes, promises made between the original 
promise, sorry, promises made to the female student to keep her apart from the male student. Uh, the first promise was, this is just before the disciplinary hearing, the institution promised that she, uh, the female student and the male student, would not be put together during morning classes. It was very difficult to keep them apart uh, during the afternoon session, so there was no promise to keep them apart then, and therefore no failure to keep a promise. With regard to the morning classes, an error was made and the male and the female student were put together. Well, that error was, or there was a plan to put them together, but that error was rectified very quickly and very decisively. The error occurred the second time uh, when the students were timetabled to be together. No one could explain how the error occurred. And the judge said the second error was negligent. It fell below the standard of the reasonable institution in those circumstances. And they were aware as well that the exposure uh, of the male student to the female student was causing her a lot of distress and she was uh, taking having specialist therapy as a result. So the negligence was, was uh, quite apparent in that second mistake. Yeah, and that again, I think is reassuring in terms of uh, th this is not about a council of perfection. The court is willing to accept that things with the best will in the world may not run exactly as people had planned, but it's always about being able to uh, explain where things have gone wrong, why they've gone wrong, and the, the steps that were then taken to prevent a recurrence. And it's really that failure to then put it right and prevent the recurrence that, that caused the problems here. Um, there was also uh, some aspects where. Um, the, the the suspension when it was ultimately imposed wasn't then enforced properly and the court took a rather dim view of that too didn't they this was the penalty the disciplinary committee had decided that the um male student was guilty not of sexual misconduct but of another form of misconduct and they imposed a suspension as a penalty and there was a failure to enforce that the male student was allowed to work in the library and to um to move through campus and, and that was particularly negligent because the whole year group had been told that the male student had been found guilty of not sexual misconduct but other form of misconduct and that he had been given a suspension so it was really important to be seen to be an enforcing a penalty imposed as a an outcome of a disciplinary process and so it was negligent not to enforce it. And there were some observations, weren't there, about the sort of support that um, the, the the institution should have been providing to um, the the reporting students uh, around counselling or, or yes forms of, of support. Yes, yes, uh, the the institution was negligent in in not providing support or offering to pay for support. Now, I, I really want to make clear that under this head, there was absolutely no suggestion from either the uh, students who are bringing the claim or the judge that there's an absolute duty on any HEI to arrange counselling services or any specialist healthcare services. 
it was the case that the institution in this case had promised that they would. And they had been aware that the female student was suffering very badly. Uh, her mental health was deteriorating and they promised that they would provide those services for her. And they'd also unsolicited offered to provide counselling services for the male student. So uh, it is a simple case of failing to honour a promise made. In, in circumstances where you would know that a failure to do it could cause harm. And, and there were lots of aspects of this case which are quite difficult to extrapolate general principles from because it was so specific and such unusual facts. But one area which I suppose has uh, does come up relatively frequently is when to treat a report as a complaint under the um uh, under you know under whatever the policy is for bringing such complaints and so in this case the second student i think was ultimately um giving uh, supportive evidence of the um the conduct from this male student but but based on her own experiences and then in that capacity she was treated as a witness wasn't she rather than as yeah. a complainant she she was a, herself alleging that she was a victim of sexual misconduct and treating her it was the consequences of treating her as a witness and not as a complainant that the judge found particularly egregious because if um, if you're a witness, you have absolutely no right to know the outcome of a disciplinary process. And so this student who was alleging that she was a victim uh, knew there was a disciplinary process uh, because she wasn't the reporting, treated as the reporting student, she wasn't told the outcome. And that was particularly um significant because both the female students and the male students remained on campus. It might have been different if the male student was permanently excluded and they wouldn't encounter each other on campus again. But it was very important that this person who was alleging that they were a victim be told the outcome, even if they weren't treated as a reporting student. So it was the consequences of the status, really. Other than the, the status itself. Um, Moving on then from the findings of, of, of negligence, the other area which I think uh, institutions need to, to reflect on is the findings of the judgment around foreseeability, uh, particularly of psychiatric harm as a result of getting things wrong in the disciplinary process. So what did, what did the court say about that? Um, they said, as we say all the time, you will only be liable for harm that you can reasonably foresee. Um, and it must be the damage must be within the general scope of the foreseeable risk uh, an institution's negligence creates. Um, and so the institution here was trying to say, look, we, we couldn't understand the we couldn't foresee the precise damage that would occur. And the court said, no, you generally had an idea of the harm that could occur because, you know, you were you 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 knew a lot about the state of this female student's health. Your own staff were reporting it. You had direct experience of the student being very upset. You had the parents telling you that the student was extremely upset um, and um the, you know, it, 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 the judge then concluded it was reasonably foreseeable that if you really engaged in a, a defective process, a process involving very, very serious allegations, which have a terrible effect on the alleged victims, then you you knew and you should have foreseen the harm that would occur as a result of the defective process. 
I suppose there was a little bit of reassurance and comfort for institutions, wasn't there, that minor flaws alone wouldn't be enough. And and how did the court kind of explain the, the level at which it would expect, well, it would regard such consequences as foreseeable? I think you have to take into account, first of all, the context, sexual misconduct is, is very serious. But the, the judge said, look, minor procedural flaws do not make it foreseeable that psychiatric injury will occur. There is a spectrum. So the more egregious the defects in your process, the greater the risk of injury and the more foreseeable it must be, especially where you know that these witnesses, these people, these alleged victims are vulnerable either because of the nature of what is being alleged. So the judge is almost saying any time there is sexual misconduct, you must assume an element of vulnerability on the part of the reporting party. Uh, so what will also make damage foreseeable is the investigatory process itself and the knowledge of an individual's actual vulnerability. Each of those on their own or a combination of those factors will make harm reasonably foreseeable. So I think the 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 case and the judgment has given us a lot of clarity around uh, how some of these legal principles are likely to be interpreted in the context of sexual misconduct cases. Are there any sort of practical steps that you think institutions could be taking now to try to reduce the risk, perhaps, of these sorts of findings? I think um, the first lesson is that if an HEI mishandles the disciplinary process in cases of serious sexual misconduct, uh, it is reasonably foreseeable that harm is likely to occur and institutions will be found to be negligent as a result. So practical steps they can take. I mean, it's pretty obvious, really. Just make sure that every HEI is aware of the UUK guidance and tries to comply with it. Um, Ensure every code of conduct conduct makes clear provision, not only just for sexual misconduct, but for a hierarchy of conducts from the least serious to the most serious so that students can regulate their behaviour accordingly and they know what will happen if they fail to comply with the code of conduct. Um, I think support to um, reporting students includes advising them on an institution's own processes, the options available to them, either reporting it to the police, having an internal investigation or both. Um, ensuring that um, um, responding students are appropriately emotionally supported and also report, uh, reporting students. Um, keep your promises. If you're promising something and you know that and the reason you're promising it is because there's a vulnerability. Please do honour that promise. Investigation reports are really important. I think an investigator must be properly trained, must ensure that they follow up and interrogate the lines of inquiry. If a reporting student makes a statement or if a responding student makes a statement, put those statements to both parties so that you can interrogate and elicit the, you know, the optimum information to enable a disciplinary panel to come to a conclusion. So properly trained investigators. 
uh, have the reporting student at the hearing so that they can be, you know, they can be questioned sensitively and so that they can give their account so that both the reporting and the responding students' credibility can be tested. Um, again, stating the obvious, make absolutely sure disciplinary penalties are enforced because if you don't enforce your penalties, it's very difficult to influence behaviour thereafter. I think that for me, the the, the point you made about um, uh, making sure that the reporting students are at the hearing it, it chimes also with the um, the conclusions that we discussed in in a previous podcast around the ABC case. You know that this is about actually fairness to both parties. Um, but incl that includes to reporting students themselves to be able to put forward answers that might, you know, affect the the ultimate um, decision that's made. Um, Jerry, as always, thank you very much for um, sharing your insights into that case. As you, it, it doesn't establish new law, but I think it gives some really helpful um, flesh on the bones of what are quite abstract legal uh, principles. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you like what you've heard, please do leave a review. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.